Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Carla Qualtro, the Liberal MP for Delta, BC, and Canada's Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion. Before politics, Carla was a Paralympian and World Championship medal winner in swimming. She served as the president of the Canadian Paralympics Association for five years, and as a lawyer, she served as counsel to the BC Human Rights Tribunal and the Canadian Human Rights Commission. In politics, Carla has served in cabinet since 2015 in a range of different roles, and she's currently tasked with delivering on major commitments to repair and maybe even reinvent our social safety net going forward. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. So many people were worried that the CERB would come to an end, and some people even think that it did here in Beaches, East York. Why was the Canada Recovery Benefits Act so important that it was the first bill adopted right after we came back? Really important question. So just to be very clear, there was never any break in coverage for benefits for Canadians. So we did transition away from the CERB, but we did that with purpose. And primarily, we wanted to create a more relevant suite of benefits for now. You know, when we created the CERB, it was at a time where we shut down the economy, where we told people, please don't go to work, stay home, be safe. And it was just in recognition of the fact that basically the world had stopped. And now, months later, we're in a different time. We are, you know, we're in a recovery phase, but we're also in the second wave of COVID. So you'll remember that we made announcements kind of weekly, and then it was every couple of weeks, and then we extended things for a month. And we really wanted to provide a longer runway of certainty for Canadians. So C4, or the the legislation that created these new benefits, puts in place three new benefits for a year. So Canadians can have certainty that over the next year, they know what they can get in terms of a a safety net or in terms of income support if their job ends, if they're not working, if their income has been reduced. So basically, we made a more kind of relevant system of benefits for now to reflect the fact that people are going back to work, but not everybody is and all the jobs aren't there. And to encourage people who have the opportunity to go to work, to go to work, but also to send a very clear message that if you can't or your job isn't there anymore, we've got your back. And you're right to point out that the CERB was rolled out so quickly. And I think one of the really important changes in this new regime, we have removed this $1,000 hard cutoff where people were pinching their pennies up to the $1,000 mark, worried that they would lose their benefit entirely if they earned $1,001. Now there's a gradual clawback after someone has earned a dollar over $38,000. And so it really does encourage people to get back to work, but also maintain that social safety net. When we look at revisiting program design, one thing that stayed the same in terms of the eligibility criteria, serve had this criteria that is now reflected in the recovery benefit and C4, where one had to have lost their job post March 15th or one had to have earned $5,000 in the preceding 12 months. Are you at all worried that people will be left behind even with those broad criteria? What's the rationale for for those criteria that does exclude some people? Yeah, really good question. And of course, we're always worried that people will be left behind. So rest assured that, that it's not that we intentionally leave people out. Really, these benefits were focused on helping workers. So people who had some attachment to the labor market, particularly kind of in the time when the world went crazy mid-March. Legislatively, we had to put a date. So it became March 15th. And so there's a very different regime in place before March 15th. If you were on EI, you continued on EI. But after March 15th, the reality with a lot of these instruments, Nate, is they're pretty blunt. And we can't do a lot of sophisticated things very quickly. Our systems weren't designed for that. So your point about the $1,000, it created a cliff. But we didn't have 
an ability to do a graduated system, uh, you know, kind of a working well on claim EI model now that we have. And we've been working nonstop since March 15th to be able to do the more sophisticated, more helpful, less clunky, less cliff riddled system for Canadians. The $5,000 was based on you know income levels of individuals with labor market attachment. It's a pretty low threshold to be honest, but I know it did result in some people not being eligible for these benefits. We had to pick a number. We felt that was the fairest number based on labor market attachment. And unfortunately, like any any line you draw in the sand, there's people on either side of it. I've had a constituent reach out recently to say, why six months? Why these 20, why 26 weeks of benefits? Why not indefinite when there's uncertainty in the months and maybe years ahead? Is it fair to say, though, in the same way that we've revisited the benefit architecture leading into the fall, that there will be this active conversation about revisiting it nearing the end of that 26-week period? 100%. 100%. So listen, 26 weeks was, was not arbitrary. So one of the guiding principles for me was to make sure that the system we created with the new benefits didn't put people who actually contributed into EI at a disadvantage. So it didn't seem fair that somebody who'd been paying into EI all their life would get less than somebody who'd never paid a dime into the system. So 26 weeks is the least amount of weeks someone can get on EI in the new system with the new modifications. So it became the most you can get on the Canada recovery benefit. So there was some symmetry there between the systems. Just like EI working well on claim is now reflected in the clawback graduated income um, return piece that you talked about earlier. We tried to really mirror EI principles, but absolutely. So listen, if the world stops again, five months from now, we are open. And in fact, I think it's our obligation to make sure that we keep supporting Canadians. And even if the world doesn't stop, we may want to revisit the conversation anew by virtue of the fact that the labor market itself may present a challenging time. Absolutely. And you see that already, Nate, in our in our wage subsidy piece, right? Or the commercial rent support is a, probably a better example where we recognize that there might be sectors that are closed down. There might be regions that are closed down. I mean, there could be a model out there where some Canadians who are told they can't go to work, but others can go to work. So this is absolutely a living, breathing um massively interesting crisis management experiment that we just all have to keep working towards to make sure people are covered and and supported. You and I have not had a conversation previously where we've compared notes and said, here's what we're going to go off and say. (laughs) But when I track what I have said publicly and repeatedly about how our social safety net wasn't fit for purpose and needs to be reinvented on a permanent basis, a permanently strengthened social safety net is what we all deserve that leaves nobody behind. It tracks pretty closely when when I read your statements inside and outside the house. And in the throne speech, we now see a commitment to an EI system for the 21st century, in addition to a disability benefit modeled on GIS for seniors. Now, do you have a sense of how we build an EI system for the 21st century, what it will mean on a permanent basis? Really good and important question. And I have some ideas, of course. I'm not one who's ever short on ideas, but you're <laughs> absolutely right. So, you know, it became very obvious very quickly in March that our EI system wouldn't do what we needed it to do to support all the workers that we wanted to support. So, I mean, we had this idea that we could build a set of benefits within EI and cover everyone, and the system just wouldn't allow it, which is why we created the SERP, because we had to take that out of EI in order to get it to people quickly. Basically, EI is this clunky, piecemeal approach to both employment insurance, but also it's become this massive tool for social policy delivery that I don't think it was intended to be. 
So we have maternity benefits, we have parental benefits, we have sickness benefits that you only get if you happen to be somebody on a worker contributing to EI when maybe these should be universal benefits. Like over the years, we've tried to address social policy objectives through effectively what's an insurance scheme, right? And it's been, it's become the hairdresser who owns a salon living next to one of her employees. She's not covered, but her employee is for maternity benefits. Now, she could opt in. Maybe that's a bad example. But the point is, you know, if we think everybody should have these more socially minded benefits that aren't job loss coverage, you know, it's really time to reconceive or even reimagine what EI could be and maybe achieve some of those broader social policy objectives differently. Maybe maybe EI shouldn't do it. When we talk about an EI system for the 21st century then and reimagining that social safety net and insurance scheme. How closely do your ideas track what is currently in C4? Is it reducing eligibility hours in a significant way? There's obviously a really arcane and inflexible cutoff here in Toronto of 700 hours to be eligible for EI benefits. And I had a tragic case where someone was short 15 hours and it was because they were in court because they'd been sexually assaulted. And you just throw up your hands and you say, how is this the system that we have designed? So is it reducing insurable hours? Are there other changes these minimum benefit schemes for gig workers and and the self-employed? Yeah. So I think everything's on the table and that's the conversation we want to provoke, but we don't want to take years having just the conversation. We really want to act. So, I mean, some of the changes you won't find it surprising that we made could be precursors to a permanent system where we don't have EI regions like we used to, where we have a minimum entry requirement that isn't as onerous, but you know, it could look totally different. You know, EI, doesn't really capture part-time workers. You could contribute your entire life to EI, never make enough hours just by virtue of the, the amount you work to ever claim EI, even though you've always paid into it. Well, that's not fair. You know, gig workers, self-employed, there's no way for people to choose how to participate in regular benefits. So we need to figure that out. Basically, EI hasn't kept up with the way we work or the way we've come to choose to support our workers. And on timeline, do you see the the next year and the 26 weeks of committed benefits as, as buying time so that the permanent system gets developed in, in the interim? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be really realistic of how long it takes us to design and implement new systems. Um, you'll remember me from Phoenix. Um, but, but, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to design or suggest anything that puts the government in that kind of risk, but you know, it's one thing to design a system. It's another thing to be able to implement it. So the newer and shinier and brighter the system is, um, we need to figure out how to actually deliver that for Canadians. So, yeah, I mean, we're not going to take years to do this, Nate, for sure. I don't really know yet because I don't know what the model is, but we are well aware of the time constraints and we won't do something that takes forever. And it might be graduated. It might be we had we do this in phases where we implement one new phase then we implement a second phase. So we're very mindful of delivery and implementation. We've learned our lessons. Now, when I read the throne speech, I am very concerned about expanding our social safety net. And so I was pulling out the pieces that I thought were critical to that end. And building out an EI system for the 21st century for people who are able to work is a really important part of the picture. And then the other part of the picture, which I think might have been the most underappreciated new commitment in the throne speech in terms of the response that people had to it, but I thought it was one of the most important things in there, which was this commitment to a disability benefit modeled on uh, the GIS for seniors. And if you think of EI for people who can work, and then a disability benefit for people who can't work, maybe we 
are getting very close to complete coverage. Getting close, right? Yeah. So listen, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's the sleeper, the sleeper legacy piece if we do it right within the speech from the throne. Um, listen, the poorest people in our country are working age Canadians with disabilities. And, you know, we've got a really good benefit now with CCB. We can improve upon it. But, you know, we've got people covered until they're 18 to some extent. We could always improve. But just to say, theoretically, we also kind of have post 65. We have a vehicle to support Canadians who are over the age of 65. Again, we could beef it up. We could make it better. But we've got those tools. We have nothing for kind of the 19-year-old to the 64-year-old who can't work or who lives in poverty, is facing barriers to employment or who has precarious work. Listen, there's other tools out there. There's a Canada Workers Benefit, which we're looking at because that is a benefit for Canadians who are working, but still have very, very low income. But for those who can't, they rely on provincial disability supports or social supports that aren't sufficient. It was a humbling experience during the pandemic, how hard it has been to get money into the hands of people with disabilities. We don't have a delivery vehicle in the government of Canada. We don't like the OAS or the CCB. I can't just pull a bucket of people out of some list and give them money. It's just, we've never done that. We've got the DTC, which is the disability tax credit, but a lot of people with low income don't claim it because they don't make enough money to claim it. So why would they claim it? So that didn't get me everybody I wanted to help. And we knew that the best way to deliver help would be to directly get money in the hands of people. It's the most dignified way. It's the fairest way. It's a way we can ensure that the money goes to the people who need it instead of giving it to somebody else to give it to them. And that always hasn't worked out in the past and it's not very dignified. So listen, the idea is exactly like GIS, someone who has a small, uh, very low income. We're gonna, we got to work out those income thresholds. There's some real potential challenges ahead of us on this file though and I need to say that quite honestly we don't want the provinces clawing this back from people's disability support payments so we need to work to ensure the provinces give us commitments not to this isn't a way to fund provincial social service programs this is a way to get money to people directly now we were successful on the CCB with that provinces agreed not to claw back but we weren't successful on the SERP no matter how much I tried and earlier this year, we couldn't get every province to agree not to claw back the CERB. And Ontario is a good example of that. People who lost income, who qualified otherwise for CERB, still got social support payments, got those things clawed back. It was completely unfair. So big, big pitfall there. We got to make sure we get provinces on board um, and we got to legislate it, figure out how it interacts with other benefit entitlements, make sure we're not creating challenges for people inadvertently. So there's lots to do, but the idea that we're even talking about it is mind blowing. And certainly there's a level of ambition that we haven't seen before. I remember in 2016, I had seen we're spending over $50 billion a year on seniors benefits. We're spending $25 billion a year on benefits for families with kids. These are direct basic income like benefits. And then to your point about that working age category, we're spending on, at the time, it was $1.2 billion on what was then the Whitby. And I thought, well, this needs to be increased and I put forward a caucus policy resolution. But I asked for a fairly modest increase and then we did increase it to now it's just over $2 billion. The employment amount is about $2 billion. These are very modest programs in comparison. And if we model a disability benefit along the lines of GIS for seniors, now the question becomes, what's the amount that we are funding it to the tune of? And the other big question, to your point about the DTC, is how do you define 
disability? Who's eligible? So those of us who've been in kind of disability advocacy circles for the past couple of decades have been calling on governments to really get disability policy out of the tax system. Like the idea that in our country, disability policy is driven by tax policy is absurd. So, you know, you your child is born and they have a significant disability. In order to get them the CCB disability, you have to apply for a tax credit for your newborn. It's the most absurd thing ever. It's also a very kind of medical model of assessment. So it doesn't reflect modern understanding of disability, modern analysis of disability. So another sleeper commitment in the speech from the throne is basically to blow up the system and reconceive of how we determine eligibility for disability supports at the federal level. So what could that look like? It could be kind of a hybrid medical functional analysis. It could mean millions more people have access to these programs. If you think of, you know, when you do a survey and 22% of people self-identify having a disability, and then you have 1.7 million people on the DTC, there's a bit of a gap there, right? Like there's not, you're not capturing everybody. We've got CPP disability recipients, we've got veterans affairs, but we're not capturing everybody. So we need to, at the same time as we develop the disability benefit, really broaden our eligibility assessment process so that more people will have access to it. Now, that one's going to take longer. We have different definitions of disability across departments. This is a a really tough and fun conversation with our tax analysts to kind of pull that out. And But we don't want to in any way stop the train on the disability benefit while we fix our own back of house and government of Canada. So we got to be mindful of that. And you mentioned earlier the challenges of not only designing, but then implementing yep. new systems and how various benefits interact with one another. But in the background to all of this, we are in a minority parliament. Yep. There is no guarantee that the liberal government lives on beyond the next election. And so does that for you just personally mean we got to get this done as quickly as possible? And you're looking at a timeline of hopefully having at least a sense of where you want to go within the next next year, maybe? Yeah, for sure. So listen, absolutely. And, you know, we want to get whatever we can baked because we want to make it as hard as possible for any future government to undo it. I mean, that's no, no secret. And absolutely. And we don't want to get caught up in years long conversations and consultations, but we do want to make sure that people who'll be implicated by this impacted, sorry, by this are kind of part of the process. And that was one of the success stories of what we did with the Accessible Canada Act was we included the disability community from the very beginning, and they see themselves in that law. And I want them to see themselves, I want us to see ourselves in that. So absolutely mindful of the reality of minority problem, but it just it just makes us have to work harder and quicker and be more strategic in the, the order that we do things. Now, when I speak about uh, permanently strengthened social safety net, I often talk about the need to leave no one behind And that leads me to a conversation about an effective basic income, not payments for everyone, but really setting a minimum floor below which nobody would fall. The PBO has done some costing work pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. And I would just pause to note we have spent a considerable amount of money, and I'm glad we have, on the CERB. So we are already in the game of providing these basic income-like benefits. Now, you were recently asked about a basic income in the House. And so at least one person read your response <laughs> and, I, and I, I went through it and you said, 
This pandemic has really revealed the gaps in our social safety net. We have taken a more targeted approach than perhaps a basic income approach would have been. We're trying to give more to the people we thought needed it the most, particularly workers and their family, which you indicated similarly previously in this conversation. But then you went on to say, however, I think there is an important conversation to be had in this country about income support, about how we can seamlessly incentivize transitioning to work instead of putting barriers in place to prevent people from actually working because they so desperately need the help. Previously, even in this conversation, you've talked about direct income supports because they are more dignified and they're fairer. I mean, I'm not asking for the government's position on this because, you know, but but do you personally have a sense of how we can best have that conversation and where you'd like it to lead? Yeah, I, I think a lot about this, Nate. So thank you for asking me. And I, you know, it's so challenging in a federation. If we didn't have different layers of government, we could have a really sophisticated, well thought out, seamless system. But what we have right now is is different approaches in different provinces, different barriers being put up. When you when you talked about barriers, you know, one of the things I'm very mindful is how basically we we make our people poor. Or we maybe maybe a fairer way to say it is we make our people stay poor. Right. We can't I can't take a job if I'm someone with a significant disability in B.C. If taking that job means I lose my pharmacare. Same in Ontario. Because if I have eight hundred or a thousand dollars worth of meds a month that are currently paid for, that I will lose that particular benefit if I take a job, then I can't afford to take the job. To me, that's ludicrous. Like to me, I don't know why we wouldn't continue to support that individual's pharmacare needs. And then they get a job and they're, they're first of all, happier and they're better off individually, but they're societally contributing. And, and that $800 or $1,000 becomes what we invest in them because it's an investment in people, right? You know this, I'm preaching to the converted here. This isn't a handout, right? This is an investment. But I, I'm mindful of how the broader things we want to do. Okay, so forget about working with the provinces on that one. What if we had national pharmacare? That it takes it away. It means that I don't have to worry about that. I'm not disincentivized by working because I'm not relying on my provincial government to pay my prescription bills every month. If I knew I could afford daycare, I wouldn't need to make that part of the analysis if I take this job because I want to take the job, right? So I think for me, it's seeing not just direct income support, but how the broader things we're doing or big things we want to do also play into the system we're trying to build. So maybe I don't have to have a really tough conversation with provinces around keeping their benefits to not disincentivize work. If I'm just going to do national pharma care anyway, well, maybe I'll put my efforts into that. I think that makes sense. Maybe a, I'm not sure it's a, it's a caveat, but I would say you're already in some ways going to have those tough conversations with the provinces if we're committed to the disability benefit. Yeah. And in some ways, if we are going to expand the EI system, depending upon how we expand it, because certainly... If we want to get in the game of minimum income supports for gig workers and the self-employed and extend maybe a recovery-like benefit on a more permanent basis, then we're already having that conversation with the provinces. And what I would what I would think, you know, we're going to have this conversation, obviously, in some respects, because at the next national convention, our, our caucus has prioritized basic income as a policy priority out of other policy proposals. I think dozens of policy proposals, we prioritize at first. And in the new year, we'll have a convention. There'll be a bit of a conversation, at least on the liberal side. Yeah. But I think as we build out the architecture for whatever EI system for the 21st century looks like, and whatever the disability benefit looks like, with an eye to here's the next step that we're going to take to permanently strengthen our social safety net. It may not have complete coverage, though. And so let's make sure we're building out in a way that it can then be built out further 
So at some point we see complete coverage. I agree with you. I agree with you. And nothing I've said today precludes that really important conversation. With In fact, I'm super excited to have it, right? So I think, you know, as the first principle, no working Canadian should live in poverty. If you are working, there is no, there is no justification in our country for anyone who is working to live in poverty. Quite frankly, no one should live in poverty. I'm not saying that, but if we, you know, through the workers benefit, through a training benefit, so people can upskill, there's just, you know, there's a real case to be made to your point about simplifying all of this, of just, just stripping it all down to what we're trying to achieve, which is basically that no one should live in poverty and starting from there. And what does that look like for everybody? Exactly. And it, it's exactly the right point to make because your policies are ultimately realized depending upon your priorities. And if your priority is, and it's certainly a priority of mine, to make sure we lift people up out of poverty, then that frames a conversation in a very different way than if we're focused on universal services for pharmacare and childcare, yeah. which are really important. I think you're right that they will ultimately interact in really positive ways. But direct income supports for reasons of dignity, which I'm glad you highlighted, that's the that's the surest path to lifting people out of poverty in a really serious way. So I, I'm done my substantial <laughs> questions. I just have one, I have a one more personal question, I suppose. I haven't watched all of your interviews in the course of your political career. So maybe you have done interviews that I haven't watched <laughs> that you duck questions, but, but from what I've seen, you don't duck hard questions. You have a very genuine way of approaching politics, which I hold to be one of the greatest compliments a politician can receive, because I think there's too much politicking in politics sometimes. What 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 brought you to politics in the first place? I mean, you won medals swimming in the Paralympics, world championships. You served for five years as the president of the Canadian Paralympic Committee. You've been a lawyer in council, I think, to the BC Human Rights Tribunal and the Canadian Human Rights Commission. You've done a lot of different things. Why why elected office? The path to where I am today is is... It's just bizarre, but it's been wonderful. You know, I, I always had an interest in public policy and I'm, I'm a policy wonk. I'm not hyper-partisan. I, I didn't come into this world through kind of partisan channels. In fact, my first um, Liberal Party convention was as a cabinet minister. Like really, I really wanted to affect, in, you know, public policy. And I had a really meaningful conversation with Justin Trudeau when he was leader before he was prime minister. And I talked about what I thought was broken in our system around helping people with disabilities. And he kind of convinced me to run and give me the opportunity to change that. So I really, I believe that we need to be honest with Canadians. We don't always get it right. And oftentimes there are, there is room for improvement. And if I, I don't know how to do it all and you don't know how to do it all. So if you've got an idea, I don't care what party you're from and it, it makes what I'm trying to do better than ab adder, like two minds are better than one. So I have a very, I try and be really honest with people. And, you know, I remember one of my first interviews when I was at PSPC and, and it was about Phoenix and, and Evan Sullivan asked me, you know, is this going to cost a billion dollars? And I literally heard the collective don't say yes, kind of from all the comms people on the planet. And I looked right <laughs> at him and said, it could, <laughs> because it could, and it has, and, you know, because we knew it might, right? And so, and then he actually told me later that he didn't actually know what his follow-up question would, because he didn't expect me to be honest and say he expected to have to grill me, so. I think that's a really underappreciated element in politics for reasons of just our own integrity, but also for reasons of people's faith in our democratic institutions. I personally feel one of the reasons I, I got involved in politics is I 
I have a naive, optimistic view of politics that it is a noble profession. I agree. And yet people dismiss it oftentimes because we don't see enough honesty in it. You know, we don't hear people answer questions to say, I don't know the answer to that. I will look into it and I will get back to you with an answer. Or yes, it, it might be as challenging as you're framing it as. It could be. We're gonna we're gonna make sure we solve the problems as best we can, but there are going to be challenges. There's a there's a tendency to talk around issues into duck hard questions that I think ultimately does a disservice to our to our profession. I agree with you, Nate. And we can't know everything, right? Like uh, I I worry and I fret very much about doing media interviews because I like to have substantive answers for people. But there's just no way I can know what's going on in every file, in every program and service in the government of Canada. And it's not that I don't want to answer a question. It's it's honestly, I don't know how many ventilators we've purchased in the past week. I just don't. I just can't keep that all in my brain as much as I try to know it all. And so if I say to you sincerely, I, I don't have that data. I want to give you the correct answer. I'll get it to you. And then I get it to you. That says something, right? Well, I have no comms people to ignore, but I hope you keep <laughs> ignoring your comms people. And and I will say, I think it's fascinating and I think it's wonderful, really, in many respects, that you have a conversation with the prime minister before he's the prime minister and you explain that you want to get involved in politics to serve people with disabilities. And now you are going to be the minister that is helping to shepherd through this new disability benefit to significantly alleviate poverty and to significantly support people with disabilities in the most dignified way we can. So I think that's a, it's, it's incredible the way some things work out. It's wonderful. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. And you know what I'll say is I think the Accessible Canada Act too will become one of our big legacies. I think 10 years from now, when it gets quasi-constitutional status, like the official languages or the Multiculturalism Act, I think we're all going to look back and say, that was a game changer. And I can tell you, it's already been a game changer in this pandemic. We have had a better disability inclusive pandemic response because we have the Accessible Canada Act, because we have committed to removing barriers and including people from the beginning. It, it's it's one of these things that kind of history will record. We did right by people. And I'm very proud of that. Well, I don't know when I will see you next in person, but keep up the good work. And I hope that the next time we have a conversation, I will not record it, but the next <laughs> time we have a conversation, we, we continue to have this conversation about basic income and building out a permanently strengthened social safety net. And, and you know, I know you're such an ally and a friend on this, and I look forward to leaning on you heavily because it is, it's something that I think we need to do for Canada. Thanks, Carla. I really appreciate it. Take care, Nate. Bye. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca, and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.